purpose. Um, if you, if this is not what you are looking at, leave the room, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the secretary call, do the roll call. President Gustavo Serena. Here. Vice President Katie Liu. Here. And please note that Executive Director Shereen McSpadden is present. At this time, we ask that you silence all sound producing devices. Motion to approve the agenda. So moved. Seconded. Second. Oh. Done. New business. A review of the DAS fiscal year 1920 and 2021 budget. Thank you, Daniel. So, do I have a, is that enough of a microphone? Okay. So, as, as we've done in past years, I will talk through the first part of our presentation and Shireen will pick up in the second part of our uh, presentation and then we'll both answer questions. Um, so, so this is the first of two presentations and this is really the one during which we set the groundwork, we review the current year budget um, we review the financial context in which we're making a new budget, and we acquaint you with some of the issues we're facing as an agency and as a department, and, and to some extent some of the issues we're facing as well moving forward. Um, then over the next two weeks, we're going to finalize our proposal, and we will be back, I think it's on the 15th, uh, to present our proposal and ask your approval on it. So, so today's meeting is not an action item meeting. It's, uh, it's information that's preliminary to hearing our proposal in another two weeks. So we typically look at our budget in three different ways. Um, the first one is on this first slide, and it is the way, it's the money that we have in the program, um, and we break it out by sources. Um, and what you will see is that about a quarter of our budget in DAS is funded by federal money, and, um, and then we've labeled 18% as coming from state. Now, State is a little more complicated uh, because there are really three major sources of state money on this chart. There's, um, there's what's labeled as state, and then there's also 1991 realignment money, and then there's 2011 realignment money. And uh, it's called realignment money because there were realignment laws passed in 1991 and 2011 and those laws both um, dedicate a percentage of the sales tax and a percentage of the vehicle licensing fee on the state level to uh, counties for social services programs. There are, there are other programs that are not in social services programs that are realigned as well. Um, there are public health programs, there are mental health programs, and, and in uh, 2011 there were public safety programs as well. So, so the portion of realignment that we receive is, is uh, social services realignment, um, and it covers a number of programs in the Human Services Agency. Most of them are on the Department of Human Services side of the agency, and they include CalWORKs, uh, CalFresh and Medi-Cal eligibility, and many of the child welfare-related programs. On the DAS side of the Human Services Agency, there is one very big program that's been realigned, and that's the 1991 realignment of IHSS costs. Um, and then in 2011, there was a second realignment, and most of that affected child welfare, but uh, it also affected adult protective services. And so that's why we have a, a big slice of 1991 realignment revenue and a smaller slice of, um, of 2011 realignment revenue. And they, they fund, uh, respectively, a portion of the IHSS program and a portion of the APS program. Um, so federal money, you know, goes to fund IHSS administration, IHSS uh, health benefits, Public Authority Administration, a piece of the Adult Protective Services Program, 
part of the IHSS contract mode program. And then there is uh, time studying by a number of CBOs, which also draws down federal money under what's known as the County Services Block Grant. And this money is available, it's federal money that's available for connecting um, clients up with, with health benefits of various sorts. Um, and then we have another big piece of money, um, the general fund share, which is money that is primarily available um, for, uh, well, well, a big part of it's available for the IHSS MOE, which is a, a county expense for the IHSS program. There's also money that's available for CBO contracts. Um, there's some money in the APS program. Uh, we have the Dignity Fund, which in 1819 was $47 million. And if you remember, the Dignity Fund started out with a base of $38 million, and we added $6 million in the first year and then $3 million in the second year. Year two is 1819 to get us to the $47 million, and we will be adding $3 million a year uh, for some time now. Um, and then there's uh, money that goes into the Community Living Fund, um, and then there are uh, small bits of other money as well. So if we go to the next view, it's the program view. Um, and as you can see, DAS is comprised of a large number of programs, which from an expense point of view are not hugely expensive individually. Um, and then it's got about 70% of its money in the IHSS program. So sort of the bottom, the bottom 70% of this pie chart is really different pieces of the IHSS program, uh, starting on the right side from IHSS contract mode and then going through the IHSS MOE, maintenance of effort payment, and then payments that go through the public authority um, to buy uh, health benefits for IHSS workers. And then there's an administrative cost for the IHSS uh, public authority. And then lastly, there's about $20 million in IHSS uh, program management. Uh, and those are primarily staff of DAS who work on the IHSS program. Uh, and then, then the next really big piece um, is the uh, Office of Aging, which is where we have uh, the lion's share of our contract budget. Um, and a large portion of that $63 million is, in fact, Dignity Fund money. And then the third view is sort of what, what kinds of things are we buying with that money? Um, and there again, you see that 65% that, uh, goes to what we call aid payments. And those are, again, that's another way of looking at the IHSS program. So the money we put out the door um, that supports the IHSS program uh, is in this age bucket. And, and the only IHSS expense that's not in this age, aid bucket is money for um, the staff, IHSS administration at DAS. Um, you can see, again, we spend about $63 million on CBO contracts. Uh, most of these are in the Office of Aging. Some of this is in the CLF program or long-term care operations. Um, you know, and we have things in there like support at home and the rental assistance demonstration programs. But most of it are, is the, is the uh, Office of Aging programs that this commission speak, uh, uh, spends a lot of its time looking at. Um, and then, of course, you know, the other big area that we have in here is essentially staffing, um, salaries, and fringe benefits. Okay. So, so one of the things that the mayor's office and the controller's office and to some extent, the budget and legislative analysts' office work together on um, each year is an analysis of the uh, the current law costs of city programs going out five years into the future. 
and this has a lot of uses. Um, one of the you know one of the uses is longer term financial planning, and sort of understanding the larger city financial context. In the shorter term, if we look at just the upcoming biennium, the purpose is to establish a gap, if there is one, between. Um, city program costs and expected city program revenues. And then one way of, of looking at the sort of the big picture view of what the budget making process is about is it's balancing that budget or bridging that gap in a way that delivers the best programmatic response for the city. Um, so the way to read this is in the uh, budget year, 1920, we are anticipating a, uh, a revenue increase from uh, basic tax sources of $182 million. And we are also expecting expenditure increases that are larger than that by about $107 million. And in doing this analysis, the, uh, the mayor's office and the controller's office break these these uh, cost increases into several large categories. Um, the largest is um, is salary and benefits. Um, and city workers are mainly working, well, almost entirely working under contracts of one sort or another. And those are normally negotiated for a multi-year period. Um, we're at a point now where negotiations are uh, just commencing for all unions except for police and fire. Police and fire uh, were renegotiated last year. Uh, so, so in doing this work, they have made an assumption that the uh, salary increases in the new contracts will be equal to the CPI, which, you know, may be right. Um, and... Uh, and then the second big bucket is, um, is baselines and reserves. And I think, as we all know, um, uh, the city of San Francisco is ardent in its use of, um, of dedicated funds uh, compared to, well, compared to every other municipality in California, actually. Um, and so, so in DAS, the big um, dedicated fund is the Dignity Fund. Um, in another part of HSA, um, uh, we have a dedicated fund that supports child care, and there are many, many other dedicated funds supporting parks, supporting transportation, supporting uh, programs for children, et cetera, et cetera, throughout the city. And so the point here is that when revenue grows, those funds all get a piece of that growth. So in doing this, what... Um, what the mayor's office at all are saying is uh, we have $55 million that is going to go into city services. It's not going into the general fund. It's going into special funds of one sort or another. Um, and then the next bucket is departmental costs. And in the budget year, this is actually um, not an area of growing cost. Um, it grows relatively quickly after that. Um, and about three-fifths of the growth in this bucket over the long term is actually the growth of the IHSS program under current law. So when you go to a meeting of CFOs in the city, you hear about every other minute that the IHSS program is really driving costs in a big way, and everyone looks at me. Um, the, you know, the point here is that the IHSS program has... Um, gone through a number of different financing models. The most recent that has been enacted was SB 90 of 2017. And that shifted a lot of cost from the state to the counties um, and really caused a rapid growth in, in the uh, IHSS costs in this program. Now, we have done things locally, which I think we would all say are good things to have done, but they've also increased the costs of the IHSS program rapidly. And, uh, and those are around the minimum wage law and more recently the minimum compensation ordinance. And I'll talk a little bit about more, those in a few more slides. Um, but that's why we, we get mentioned so much here. And then the citywide uses are 
are basically various notions of inflation and uh, capital investment that need to be made. So um, I guess the, the unbelievably short summary of the mayor's analysis is that growing, uh, that revenues are growing slower than expenses. And so when we look at each of the next five years, without doing something different from what we're doing now, there is a growing deficit. Um, that, uh, that city workers are um, having salary costs grow, and that's the biggest cause of those deficits. Um, and, uh, and, and then there are other decisions we've made to this point, which also called, caused deficits to grow. So, so basically we have um, what you'd call a structural deficit. I mean, that's the, the euphemism people always use. Um, so that, that's where we start off. And then the question is, what do we do to get into balance? And so we have all received instructions about reductions of general fund use. They are relatively small um, in the HSA. And these numbers are for all of HSA, not just us. And typically when we, when we balance the budget, um, we do it across all of HSA. So across DAS, Office of Early Care and Education, Department of Human Services, and HSA administration, which is a, also a big expense area. Um, but across all of those against our almost $1 billion budget, um, our 1920 target is about um, $753,000, so relatively small. Um, and then it doubles in the next year. And, um, and part of the reason our target is relatively small is we don't include dedicated funds in the base of funds against which we take 2%. We don't t consider outside revenues, federal, state, realignment. Uh, and we don't include money spent on aid. So in the case of the DAS budget, the, the general funds spent on the IHSS program are not part of the calculation. Um, and then this year, we have been asked to identify a contingency reduction of a further 1%, which, which we will do. Um, so we develop a budget, um, I guess, I guess what I've said is obvious, but, but uh, or I'm about to say is obvious, but because we have so much state and federal revenue, obviously the state and federal context is very important for us in building a budget. So there are a number of concerns with regard to money from the federal government at, at the moment. And, and some of them are general broad economic concerns. Um, you know, we have been in a quote-unquote recovery for 10 years now. So it's getting to be a very long time. And there's been good economic growth throughout that period. You know, it's, we don't necessarily expect a recession like the last recession, but it's reasonable to assume that growth will slow at some point. So that's, that's just out there. Um, you know, the other thing is the current administration is doing things that has caused a lot of volatility in the stock market uh, and may begin to have sort of general economic consequences. So that's out there as well. Uh, more recently, we have been looking at the impacts of federal shutdown. Um, we don't really have serious impacts within the DAS program. Um, we have had two impacts within HSA that we've been concerned about. And uh, one of them is um, the impact on the TANF or CalWORKs program. So far, that's been theoretical, and TANF has been reauthorized through the rest of this state fiscal year, at least. So we're really now getting ready to worry about next fiscal year. With regard to CalFresh or food stamps, um, there was an impact during the shutdown that just recently ended, uh, and we ended up issuing food stamps 
much earlier than we would have. We, we pushed the issuance date up uh, by 15 days. And the reason we did that is budget authority um, for food stamps ran out on January 20th. So the state of California, at the request of the USDA, issued early. Now we have the government open till February 15th. And so as we get close to that date, if there's no resolution uh, to the budget, the, the impending budget shutdown, we will probably have to issue food stamps benefits early again, which is which it actually doesn't have a fiscal impact on the agency, but it's bad for our clients. Um, they, when, you get, when they get a monthly benefit um, two weeks or three weeks early, then it's got to stretch out over a longer period of time, which is confusing. Uh, that is not an issue at the present time for most DOS clients, or for any DOS clients, really. Um, it will become one as we move into um, into the next fiscal year, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, and then there is another um, federal issue that is also in another part of the HSA, but actually has a fairly significant fiscal impact in the long run, and that's the end of what we call the 4E waiver. And I won't go into any detail on what the 4E waiver is, except to say that it is a child welfare financing mechanism that ends on September 30th of 2019. And it has delivered to us about $4 million a year more than we would have gotten without it. So as it ends, that's a revenue source we don't have and we need to deal with it. And so that puts pressure on the whole budget. Um, So when we get to state concerns, um, I, the first item is really not a concern. It's a, it's a good thing. The governor, Governor Newsom, has proposed a change again in the IHSS MOE. This change is actually very uh, beneficial to counties. And in uh, San Francisco, we are estimating that this change, assuming it's an enacted, will put us about $11 million to the good in the budget year and about $20 million to the good in the budget year plus one. So that's great. Um, it's done in a combination of ways that are sort of technical to the MOE, and I won't go into them here. Uh, but, but this is a good thing, and this is the governor or the governor's office, or both, reacting to uh, huge concern from counties about the growth of costs of the IHSS program. Um, there have been a number of other things that are good news uh, in, the, uh, in the governor's proposal. Uh, he has proposed raising CalWORKs grants rather steeply. Um, we also have uh, a new program that's coming online starting in June, which um, we're, I think we're still looking for a better name for, but at the present time we're calling it the SSI Cash Out Reversal, So, um, which is descriptive but not catchy. The, um, so in California for 30-plus uh, years, People who are on SSI have not been eligible for the program that is currently known as, as CalFresh and once upon a time was known as food stamps. And in, in lieu of that benefit, they have gotten um, an additional state grant of $10 a year. <laughs> and what many people have noted over the years is as the um, CalFresh benefits have changed, uh, they would do much better being on CalFresh if they qualified for CalFresh. Um, and we are estimating there were about 42, 43,000 folks in San Francisco who are SSI recipients. We are estimating that about 13,000 of them will actually be eligible for CalFresh. And for, for those folks who are, they'll, they'll receive an average grant that's probably around $80 a month. So that's the difference between $10 and $80, not 
not gigantic, but but also good good to have. Um, and so um, so that change is going into effect uh, in June, and the state has uh, funded additional money for doing that eligibility work and working with those clients. Um, it's, uh, you know, there, as always in the state budget, allocations go up and allocations go down. Most of them are tied to caseload. So, so uh, money in the CalWORKs and CalFresh program, other than the SSI cash out reversal, are going down. Uh, Medi-Cal uh, allocations are going up. IHSS admin allocations are going up. So there are puts and takes there. The last thing I would like to talk about before um, turning this over to Shireen is IHSS wages. And um, obviously there's an interest to us in, in paying a decent wage to IHSS workers. We'd like them to be able to live in and around the city, first of all. Uh, we'd like them to think of this as a good job. We'd like them to be able to keep doing the job. Um, and because we have 20,000-ish um, IHSS workers, any change made in the wage has a very big fiscal impact. Um, so we have been, over the last year, going through a labor negotiations process, and then that process kind of bridged into a process of negotiation over a new minimum compensation ordinance which affects uh, IHSS workers, it's the largest fiscal impact is on IHSS, is from IHSS workers, and also CBOs. Uh, and what the, uh, the new minimum compensation ordinance says is that uh, this Friday the IHSS wage will go from $15 an hour to $16 an hour. And uh, then in July it'll go to $16.50, and then a year later to $17.50, and then a year later to 18, and then after that to 1875, and it will grow with the CPI after that. And so we are estimating that that will get the IHSS wage to about $1.75 an hour above the minimum wage, which in San Francisco is high compared to other places. Um, and then at the bottom of this chart, we've estimated that this will cost the city uh, $6.2 million this year and then another $7.3 million next year because it affects the IHSS MOE. So I'm going to turn over to Shireen at this point. Thank you, Dan. That overview, that's really helpful. Um, and good, good afternoon, commissioners. Um, as you know, this is usually the meeting um, of the Finance Committee where we discuss kind of um, the budget instructions and as Dan has already talked about, the also um, concerns we have or, or just kind of things we need to be aware of as we're building the budget for next year. Um, and we also like to talk about some of the highlights that we have that we have with each of our programs and give you an idea of like how many people we're serving and things like that. So um, you can see from the... I guess I should go stand over there, huh? Should I stand over there, or? If, if you like, or do you want me to just? Or can you just flip the slides for me, because I realize I can't see want, me. You want the caseload slides, right? Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. So, um, so basically, you can see from the caseload slides that we're serving, um, particularly, I just want to point out, in-home supportive services and the Office on the Aging, um, because those are kind of our two biggest areas that we serve people. Um, we had 25, over 25,000 clients in fiscal year 17-18 for in-home supportive services, and we served over 34,000 people in the Office on the Aging in 17-18. So those are in generally, um, I think we estimate that we serve over 60,000 people annually, which means we're serving about a quarter of the eligible population that in San Francisco that we could serve. And moving on to the next slide. Um, so adult protective services, you know, the mandate of adult protective services is to investigate allegations of abuse and neglect, and including self-neglect. 
And there are a couple highlights here. Um, I guess the biggest one being that we just landed a big grant from the state called Home Safe, which is an eviction prevention pilot program. Um, the Department of of social services at the state is providing over $770,000 over three years to really look to see if there are ways to um, to really improve eviction rates for victims of abuse and neglect. And so we were really excited to get this and our team worked very hard on putting together the grant proposal. And what it really is gonna allow us to do is work closely with the um, Department of Homelessness and supportive housing to identify people who are in supportive housing who are at risk of eviction um, due to abuse or neglect. And basically it, it helps us provide services, wraparound services for them through Community Living Fund um, so that we can ensure that they stay safely at home and do not get evicted. So a number of people, um, and you've, I know you've heard some of these stories, you know, we often have people who are um, who are at, at risk of abuse or who are self-neglecting, you know, kind of having these, they're, they have behaviors that really don't allow them to live safely in the house or in their supportive housing environment, things like hoarding and um, hoarding behaviors and sometimes, you know, bed bugs and just general things that aren't helpful for them when they're living in a community environment like that. And so this really allows us to work with them to prevent that eviction. So it's exciting. And we, we, APS has been doing a lot of that work, but we haven't really had um, a funding stream to really help with that support um, that's that's needed. So this is this is going to be great, and of course we'll be evaluating the program as we go along. Um, in in-home supportive services, one of the things that we launched recently, and I know we talked about this at commission um, through our contract mode contractor, which is Homebridge, and so. Just to remind you, the contract mode is for people who really are not able to manage their own worker but still need in-home supportive services. And so Home, Homebridge has been really struggling with um, the ability to retain a workforce. A workforce. Um, we think of them as really serving people who are very difficult to serve. And of course, um, even with the increases in pay, that IHSS workers are going to get. We still know that this this is just a really difficult job, and and so Homebridge kind of came to us and said, you know, we'd really like to have a way to pay workers more, and so they launched with our funding. They launched um, a program called Steps, which is Skills Training and Employment Pathway, and essentially what that allows them to do is is provide training to their workforce and extra training, um, and then pay them two to three dollars above the minimum wage. We are in the first year of this, and it's really a pilot because we want to see, you know, does this really help with the retention of the workforce? Does it help with quality? And we, the evaluation won't come out until 1920, but in just in the first year, we've seen some kind of promising results from this. So we're really hopeful that it'll help retain that workforce that is so important to us. Um, and then moving on to the op Office of the Public Conservator, one of the things that we've been working very closely on with the mayor's office and with the Department of Public Health, as well as um, some of the board members on the Board of Supervisors who are really interested in this, is helping to um, prepare the SB 1045 implementation. And SB 1045 was this um, conservatorship bill that was authored by um, Senator Weiner and passed by the legislature. And really what it allows is for, um, for, it really helps people who are on the street, who are have you know behavioral health issues in tandem with substance abuse issues and who really just aren't able to care for their own needs. And so it's kind of another tool along with more traditional conservatorship that the city can use to you know, help people get off the street, get the, the, the treatment that they need. Um, and there's also a housing component. So there's a supportive housing ongoing for people who meet the criteria for SB 1045. So there's a lot of work to do. Um, the board has to to accept it, to, to do it in San Francisco. Um, and then we need to, you know, get the program up and running. So I think Jill Nielsen, um, my deputy director over those programs, has been working really hard with her team to get ready for that. And then the Office of the Public Guardian, um, 
you know, conservatorship is just really confusing to many people. And one of the things that we've noticed that, you know, when we're not getting referrals or we're not getting kind of the, the right kinds of referrals that we need is that there really needs to be a lot of education um, with healthcare providers and hospitals who are making the referrals to our office so that they better understand how to get um, kind of how to pre prepare the referral correctly so we have all the information we need, but also so that they really understand, you know, when somebody really meets criteria for conservatorship and when they don't. Um, and just, you know, to get so that people have education about, um, you know, other options as well, but so that they, so they really understand how to get referrals in so that we can accept them quickly and move people into the kind of care that they need. And so that's something that we're working with um, a, a provider with um, to do some education out in the community. So we're kind of launching this seminar um, so that people in the healthcare community can really understand conservatorship and get correct referrals into us so that we can do a better job of serving them more immediately than we can right now. Um, moving to the next slide, Dignity Fund, the community needs assessment, which we've been talking about a lot at commission, um, was completed last fiscal year, and then our planning staff really did some deeper dives into some of the data that we had specifically because we realized we wanted to look at communities with what we call equity factors and get a better understanding of how we're serving people currently, you know, whether people know about services, um, whether they're using them at the rate that we think they should be given their, their proportion within the total population. And so we looked at um, communities of color and kind of disaggregated the communities of color data that we had so that we could see how well we were serving various communities of color instead of just saying, we know we serve communities of color um, very well. We know that people from communities of color are really using our services, but when we started separating them out, we saw that there were differences. And so trying to you know, understand that so that we can think about how we target our funding and we, and how we target our work in communities to make sure that we're serving people equitably. Um, it was It's just really great information to have. So we did the communities of color, also looked at LGBTQ, seniors and people with disabilities um, as a deeper dive, and then we looked at caregivers. And so we gleaned a lot of information from that that we will use in our service allocation plan um, that we need to that we're de in developing that we're developing right now, um, the service allocation plan will guide our allocation of funding over the next four years. And um, for those of you, the two of you who uh, really like to read, and I know you like to read the stuff that comes out of the department, um, we will be releasing a draft of the service allocation plan March first because we need to go through the process of having the oversight and advisory committee looking through it, making their comments, you know, um, we need to make revisions, we need to take it to the mayor's office and, um, and you know, have the mayor take a look at it and all of that before we can actually start implementing that allocation plan. So there's still steps that we have to take and we want to get that out so that the public can read it and make comments on it um, as soon as we can. So March 1st, you can plan to read it. It's a Friday. Um, Office on the Aging, we've done a few things with ad back money. Um, we got, I think, was it $2.8 million in ad backs, I believe, um, or close to, yeah, I think it was about $2.8 million, um, primarily for um, increasing our meals programs, meals and nutrition programs. So um, home delivered meals and home delivered groceries did very well in the ad back process, and so we have spent some time um, allocating those dollars out to our meals providers. And then um, we also got some funding through um, the board to increase employment opportunities for older adults and people with disabilities. We already have the program that called ReServe that we um, fund community living campaign for, and they have job subsidies for seniors and people with disabilities, and they're working hard with the nonprofit communities um, to to find you know job placements and do that but we thought it would be a really good opportunity to work with them but also to think about um, leveraging the infrastructure that we have at human services agency through Department of um, Human Services workforce development program so we are now working with them to figure out whether they can serve um, older adults and adults with disabilities and and also using community living campaign as a as the community provider 
um, to reach out to, to new adults um, and people with disabilities who could benefit from their programs. So that's an exciting thing for us. And then long-term care operations. Um, we are in the evaluation pro process looking at community living fund um, program impacts and really trying to pay attention to um, making sure that community living fund is really focused on preventing institutionalization. And we know from the evaluations that we've done that, that um, people who are in community living fund really tend to um, not go back in the hospital as much as people who, you know, as, as, as if they, as much as if they didn't have those services. We know those services are really helping people stay at home, um, living safely in community, which is exactly what we want from that program. Um, its flexibility is great. You know, it has case management, but the case managers are really able to help people with other tangible services that they might need and, and set up their homes to be, to make them safer, um, get them extra meals if they need or extra home care if they need. And it's been very successful in keeping people out of the hospital. Um, we're also, we just completed the first year program evaluation report for the support at home program, which if you recall is a program aimed at people who have um, more income than people on Medi-Cal, so they don't necessarily qualify for in-home supportive services without a giant sh share of cost. Um, and it, the program provides subsidies for them for home care. And it's really for people who don't need hours and hours and hours of home care, but people who might need a small amount of home care per week to really help them remain at home safely. And um, while we, this is a two-year pilot, and so we really need to wait until we see the second-year evaluation the first year evaluation, you know, kind of has some promising results, you know, su suggesting that um, the program does help people stay at home safely. And then just the, the next page is really um, some things that we're working on. And so age and disability friendly. Um, in 17-18, we had an age and disability friendly work group that really focused on identifying strengths that the city has with respect to older adults and adults with disabilities, so really kind of asset mapping. What are we good at? What are we really good at in San Francisco with respect to older adults and adults with disabilities? And then kind of where could we improve? And what efforts are already being done where we can kind of tag on and say, hey, you know, there's, a, there's an angle for adults with disabilities and older adults here. We came up with 24 recommendations for the city um, that we can work on. And then there's a new implementation body um, led by Nicole Bond, who's the Mayor's Office on Disability Director, and Kelly Dearman, who's the head of the San Francisco Public Authority. And they're really kind of leading us um, forward to, to finish these recommendations. And, and really, there's some exciting work going on there. So um, you'll be hearing more about that when we come back to report on, on that. Um, National Healthcare Decisions Day is April 16th, and the San Francisco Palliative Work Group, which I co-chair along with Dr. Christine Ritchie at UCSF, who's a geriatrician at UCSF, um, the Palliative Care Work Group is really, really interested and involved in creating um, some buzz around National Healthcare Decisions Day. We are partnering with the libraries, so we're going to have events at the couple events at the main library. Um, but we'll also have events throughout the city at some of the branch libraries, and then we're going to ask some of the senior centers in various communities where we don't aren't partnering with the library that day to have advanced care planning workshops, to really have some um, panel discussions maybe about thinking about preparing for death um, and, and, and chronic illness. You know, how do you handle that? What, are, you know, what do you want your choices to look like? You know, how do you plan ahead? And then... Um, we're also, we may be showing some films that day, so we kind of want to just jump on the, the fact that this is a national day and really do something in San Francisco. We want to do this well and um, probably small and then hope to do this every year in the future and maybe build on what we do this year. So kind of going for some small successes this year and then hoping to build it into something bigger and, and with more um, communications and marketing focus in the, in the ensuing years. Um, dementia Early Diagnosis and Intervention, so we've been working with UCSF and their aging, Optimizing Aging Collaborative to train staff within our department to, um, to recognize early signs of d dementia, and then we've been working, and then, you know, so they're trained and then report that to our, our uh, 
clinical what is it called? Clinical and Quality Assurance Unit, so that th that staff can then go out and do some follow up and, and help people get resources. So that's something that's really exciting for us that we weren't doing a few years ago, and now we're we've trained a number of our staff in adult protective services and in home supportive services to recognize those signs. And then um, lastly, on this page is the reframing campaign. Um, I've talked to you about that as well uh, a few times, but we're still kind of plugging along with reframing. Right now, we are in the process of engaging a creative agency um, to work with us on messaging to the public and really saying, you know, using the language from the um, Frameworks Institute that kind of, that, you know, shows positive images of aging and things like that and, and just trying to figure out how we incorporate those messages into what we're doing in San Francisco. And our, our two-pronged goal with that is to make sure that the public thinks about aging and, and not just like is getting old and being shut out and isolated and all of that, the negative images that we often see, but trying to get it to where, you know, we say, hey, you know, this is something that we all face and, you know, how can we do it in as positive ways we can? How do we embrace it as part of life? Um, the other prong of it is to really make sure that older adults and people with disabilities um, understand that there are services here for them because one of the things we kept hearing in the community needs assessment forums and and you know throughout that whole process was that people don't know where to go for services so that's going to be part of our marketing and communications work as well so the last slide is of course a schedule and um, we're here today and we'll be back in two weeks and uh, and then a week after that we will be submitting our budget um, and then as you know what really happens after we submit our budget is, is there's months of work back and forth between this agency and all other agencies and the mayor's office um, to figure out really what should go into the mayor's budget that happens by June 1st and then uh, the next six weeks is devoted to the board process and in about the middle of July, the board will pass a budget for the next fiscal year and the fiscal year after that. So we do a rolling biennial budget. Uh, questions for us? And I want, uh, how much is the DSS, I mean, DOS uh, share of the IHSS program? So are you looking for a percentage of costs? Is that it? Or both? So, so IHSS is kind of complicated these days. Before the world of the MOE, um, the, there was a, for, for each hour of service provided, there was a local share, a state share, and a federal share. The federal share was 100%. The state share was... 32.5% up to a cap, and the local share was 17.5% up to that cap. And then when the cost of wages and benefits were over the cap, the local share for the amount over the cap was 50%, and the federal share was 50%. When we instituted the MOE, which happened back in 1213, um, the way of doing this changed. And for a number of years, the county share actually went down um, because counties were shielded from caseload growth costs and to some extent shielded from uh, cost per hour. They were certainly shielded on the medical benefit side. And in San Francisco, because our wages were driven by minimum wage ordinance implementation, we were also shielded on the um, on the uh, service cost side. Um, then when SB 90 passed in 2017, that changed that yet again, and the local share started growing rather rapidly. And partly that was because higher inflation factors were put into effect, um, and, uh, and partly it was because we were no longer shielded from some of the cost increases as we had been in the past. Um, so. If Governor Newsom's proposal holds, the rate of growth of the county share will slow compared to what it's been. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's a good answer to your question, but that's sort of the way I look at it. 
On the administrative side, there was also a sharing ratio which was affected by the implementation of the county MOE. And, and the new law basically sets us back to the old way of doing business. So the federal share for administrative costs is 50%. The state share is 35% up to a cap. And the county share, obviously, below the cap would be 15%. And then when we exceed the, the state allocation, the costs become 50% federal and 50% local. Yeah, uh, the, because this is a DOS is actually really the big portion of the DOS budget. Well, I mean, you know, it's it, actually, it's a, in a way, bigger than the budget would suggest because there is a big IHSS cost that is paid with federal and state money that doesn't hit the DAS budget at all, and that is the uh, the federal. It just passed through. Yeah, it's the it's the federal and state share of IHSS independent provider wages, and I think we estimated earlier today because I had a feeling this question might come up, <laughs> that 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 is uh, about three hundred and twenty-five million dollars. So, so it's actually a huge additional amount of cost for the IHSS program that's borne by the federal and state governments but doesn't hit the, uh, the DAS budget. Thank you, Dan. Thank mm -hmm. you, Shireen. As usual, very comprehensive. Um, and I have some comments and some questions. Daniel, you, in the materials you submitted, you said that one of the ways that we would be making up the projected shortfall was to tap additional revenue sources, and we've been doing that very, very well over the years. Which new revenue sources have you found that you think you'll be able to tap? Well, so um, I, I should say at this point that, that um, three of the staff who work on the budget in, uh, in the DAS budget and HSA are in the room. So, Emily Gibbs is our budget director, Ruth Levine is our principal budget analyst, and Alex Gleason is our senior budget analyst for DAS. One of the things we do, and we, we do this between now and, um, and uh, February 21st, is work on a balancing strategy where we are looking at all of the revenue sources and looking at ways that we can push them as hard as we can aggressively. One of the things um, that uh, we are we are hoping happens this year um, is that uh, counties have been advocating for a new claiming methodology for Medicaid eligibility. And um, again, I won't go into the details, but it should, if we succeed, allow us to draw down a larger federal share. So, so that would Thank you. Um, Shireen, I have... Oh. No, you go ahead. Okay. Um, I have some questions and comments as well for you. One, um, on palliative care, last year a documentary was made called The End Game, and it was shown at the Castro Theater, and it has been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Short Subject Documentary. And um, it's a very, very good film. And perhaps you can get a hold of the documentary and show it around to help people understand what palliative care is and how different it is from hospice care because the two tend to be confused. Right. They do. That's right. And um, we actually talked about showing that film that day, so and that's UC a possibility. UCSF has now made palliative care a separate division. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, it started out as a chair. So it is growing right. very rapidly, and they're attracting a great many very talented doctors into the palliative care field. Yeah, they are. Um, a couple of other things. With SB 1045, which we all were glad to see passed, did any funding come with that? Any state funding? No, no funding came with that. And it's actually still kind of considered a pilot this year because only certain counties got written into right. the legislation, right? So there's already a movement um, for cleanup legislation, which would take away some of the current barriers that are built into the legislation and also probably expand it to other counties. And, you know, certainly there's been um, some advocacy from counties to get funding for public guardian, conservator, administrator work because there is no state revenue stream for that. Um, there's a movement, right, or there's some 
I guess there's going to be a request from the public guardian administrator um, conservator association to the state for funding for these services. I'm I'm not sure where that'll go. Um, it's been you know it's been difficult in the past to get any state money for these programs, but we'll see how it we'll see how it works. Thank you. And then yeah. um, regarding step and Homebridge and the additional wages that can be paid, the higher wages once the training is completed. And I recognize how difficult the challenge is to retain, get workers right. and retain workers. Will those salaries, as they increase, how will they compare with what the IHSS workers are getting? And will that create any kind of a conflict or um, tempt IHSS workers to go work for Homebridge? Will there be any of so, um, so right now we're still evaluating, um, you know, the kind of the, how this is going to work. Like, is it really going to keep people working at Homebridge, you know, if people are getting a couple dollars more and yeah, it's great to see the, the wages increase because the issue's been kind of one across the board. I mean, we've had this retention issue for a while. Um, but it, I think our th our thinking around this is that many of the Homebridge workers, you know, aren't necessarily family members as most of most IHSS providers are, right? And that again, um, the people who are served by Homebridge are often some of the most difficult people to serve that we have. And so, I don't know, you know, if we got people going from other jobs into Homebridge, I don't think we'd see that as a bad thing. Um, we definitely want to keep that workforce very vibrant and, and active and engaged. And, you know, if there are people who want to work there, that's a good thing. So I don't, I wouldn't see, and mainly because most people are, are family providers. I mean, probably not a huge number of people would be jumping ship from their family to go work there. And then, um, the various programs that we have that are aimed at keeping people in their own home safely, do we fund any programs that make physical changes to their environment? So um, if do. they have stairs that they or, or provide stair steps or things like that to help them stay at home, do we? Oh, we do. Great. We do that through Community Living Fund. Okay. Um, and then also the city funds Rebuilding Together San Francisco, not through us, but... Um, through another con through another department, and they do a lot of that work as well. Um, so we do. And then finally, um, earlier, you mentioned that it appears that we're serving about twenty five percent of the eligible population. Right. And how did we arrive at that number? Do we mean eligible simply in terms of their age, or age and resources and income? No, we just just age and disability. So if we're thinking about um, there being 200 and, you know, 225,000 people with disabilities and older adults in San Francisco. We're serving about a quarter of them. But we don't know if they would be eligible for We don't know if they would need, income. yeah, okay. we don't know if they'd need our services. We know a number of people probably don't, you know, or they may later. Um, it's just kind of gives us, no, you know. Okay. I mean, one of the things that we can say is we know we're serving, um, we're doing very well at serving people who have limited income. So, you know, when we look at a we're looking at a quarter of the total population, but we know that we're doing very, very well in serving people who have limited income or living in poverty. And so it's way beyond that quarter. Traditionally, though, there's been a big problem with the population that has more resources than would make them eligible for our programs and yet have real fiscal needs. Right. Right. And, it, you know, it's important to realize when we're looking at things like um, personal assistance services that our bid program, the IHSS program, has very definite, very hard limits in the program. And, and there are many people who have slightly more resources than would allow them to be made eligible. And it's not, it's not as if they can really fund their home care themselves. So. Okay. Thank you. I have a couple of questions for Shireen. Uh, in the memo on page five, um, it said at the top, the nutrition program provides 2.2 million home delivered meals and almost 1 million congregate meals. I thought congregate meals should be a larger number than con nutrition, I mean, home delivery. I don't know. I'm just asking a question. You think there would be more because they're, because it's a lesser kind of a lesser intervention. I thought that more people would 
the Congress view would be more than the home delivered right. because the, the, the population is smaller. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I guess not. I mean, I think part of it is we know, um, you know, there are only certain places people can get congregate meals. Some of the some of the home delivered meals also do two meals. So that might factor into the actual number of meals. When you think about pe- congregate meals, general, I mean, people are getting one meal, right? They're going for lunch. Yeah, that's and then why they, yeah. the only thing I figure out is like because the, yeah. usually the home delivered meal, especially for the... Uh, um, Meals on wheels, they deliver two meals. Right, okay. so that would that would double, right? So, yeah. And sometimes caretakers are allowed to get home-delivered meals if it makes it easier for the client right. to complete. That's true. To eat, so sometimes it may be three meals. Um, right. I haven't thought about that one. <laughs> um, the other question I want to ask is, the National Health uh, Care Decision Day is just one day. Would there be an event the whole week or just one day? I think we're planning on just the one day. Um, we talked about both the week and the day, and I think at this point we're talking about most things happening that one day, which is April 16th. That's all I have. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thank you. We will, we will see oh, you in two weeks. Oh. Are there any public comments? Announcements? Motion to adjourn. So So moved. moved. Thank you.